Well, there you go. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Ezemiah. The book of Ezemiah. It's not in your Bible? <laughs> Actually, it's just a combination of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah this morning. As we uh, resume our journey through the Bible and the Through the Bible series that I promised you, we would just survey topic or would make our way through the Bible. Uh, and we got all the way to Second Chronicles in October, just before we went to Nicaragua. And the Lord has taken us in some different directions since then. And so we're going to pick it up where we left off this morning. Ezra and Nehemiah, I would really like to take together. I'd like for you to take Ezra and Nehemiah together in your thinking and in your learning. And for a number of reasons. Uh, One is that they were contemporaries. They functioned at literally the same time, doing somewhat different things, but some of the things they did, they actually did together, and that they appear as figures in each other's book. And so we'll just look at them as Ezemiah this morning, all right? We'll uh, continue through the Bible series. Uh, As I said, all I mean for this through the Bible series, we started in Genesis, and uh, it's just meant to be an overview of the books of the Bible and a sense of God's continuing love and passion for us as his people all the way through someday, who knows when, the book of Revelation, if the Lord uh, actually doesn't fulfill it before we get there, okay? And uh, it's a very simple thing that we're doing with this series. I'm just going to want to show you in each week uh, the context of the passage, the main storylines. And then each time I just pray for the Holy Spirit to show me some hot spot. Something in the passage that we're looking at that just really comes and has meaning for us and what the Lord really means to say to us. And so um, that's where, where we're going to be going today, taking uh, Ezra and Nehemiah together. And I, I just think that you'll find that the, that the narrative actually makes more sense if you take them together. Okay, let's pray for a second. Father, I, I need to pray. I need to, I need to settle into the place that I need to be to do the thing that I need to do, which is get out of your way. Uh, My mind's whirling in too many different directions this morning, Lord. And uh, that's not good. That's not good for the people. And so I just want to give it to you now. I just want to settle in to the reality that you are the God of the universe who delights in the praises of your people and that you find great joy in the assembly of these who are here today. For those who are close to you, And for those who are far from you, you have a great love for each one of them equally. And so we invite you to come in the power of your presence, in the power of your Holy Spirit, and uh, for you to speak the words of life to our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so uh, this morning, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah together. Let's start with some context uh, and what the, what's even going on when we look at these, uh, these books together this morning. Uh, context is so important because it establishes the important questions that 
kind of live over every passage that we have to be sure to get hold of if we're going to ever have a hope of really uh, understanding what it is that God's saying. Um, I think the pieces of context that are of great importance as we just do this survey look at Ezra and Nehemiah today, uh, first of all, the date. When, when did all this happen? And it's important to know that this happened in the, in the, in the era of the 6th and the 5th centuries B.C. So it's a long time ago. But it was following the great uh, deportation of the Jews into Babylon. You remember? When we left them, they were being conquered by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar had come, had conquered Jerusalem, and carried off uh, substantially all, uh, really, essentially all of the, the Israelites to Babylon, where they lived in captivity for 70 years. And now they, they are returning through Ezra and Nehemiah. They're returning and they're rebuilding Jerusalem. Um, so during the time that they were in captivity, the Persians actually came and conquered the Babylonians. So they were under captivity under new management. And so the Persians actually looked at the Israelites with favor. And the Persian king looked at the God of the Israelites with intrigue and respect and even reverence. And so when it came time for requests uh, made by Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, can I go back and take, take the, some of the Jews with me to Jerusalem to rebuild it, then God had made a way for them to be met with great favor. Um, so that's the, the time period that all this is happening. The general circumstances um, that are going on here, uh, Ezra, he was a priest, and a scribe, you know, that some of the Israelites were designated as priests, and they, because of the first covenant, they were the ones who handled the holy things. They were the ones who carried out the holy rituals of the first covenant, meaning all that before Jesus came. He was also a scribe, which meant that he was learned and that he, uh, he would actually copy Scripture, because they didn't have printing presses or inkjet printers or anything like that then, and so that they would actually hand copy Scripture. And so Ezra was not just a priest who knew the Scripture, but he was a priest and a scribe. And imagine his level of appreciation for the Scripture as one who painstakingly copied every word of the Scripture. Uh, I, I just imagine that if we sat down and started writing out scripture, our relationship with, the, with it could change. It could go deeper, couldn't it? Now, in my case, you'd never be able to read it afterwards. And, uh, but this was, uh, this was Ezra. He had a great love for the law of God. And, um, and so when you think about Ezra, you think about the guy who read and ministered the law of God uh, over the newly re- reconstructed temple. Because the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians when they were taken off into captivity. And under the work of Ezra, and and mostly Ezra, but Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple was reconstructed. And so Ezra was now bringing the the word of God, the law of God, uh, into the realm of the new temple. Nehemiah, he had been a cupbearer to the king. Uh, in Persia, which put him in a pretty strategic spot. Actually, the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, said that he was a eunuch, which would explain why he was even allowed to be in the presence of the queen as well. So this was who Nehemiah was, 
And he ministered, not ministered, he served the king of Persia. And then his heart began longing for Jerusalem. And the Bible says that he heard about the ruin of Jerusalem and that the walls were in ruin. And uh, he began to be stirred by that. He shared the plight of the ruination of Jerusalem with the king, Nehemiah, particularly the wall. And he gained permission to return, not only to return, but then the king appointed him as governor. And he said, yeah, you can go and be governor, and I'll give you stuff to, to build with. And, and uh, he successfully led a pilgrimage of people, the four-month journey from Babylon, previously Babylon, from Persia, now all the way to, back to Jerusalem. And so these, this is what's going on when we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, a reconstructed temple, a rebuilt wall, and most importantly, a revival of the law among the people of Israel. So with that in mind, we can start looking at what's inside of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah today. Main storylines, I want to give you four to think about. There are surely more, but I think if you can get your head around these four, you'll be able to have a sense of what these books are about. I think the first main storyline you want to get a hold of is the restorative favor of God toward his people. That it's always, it's always in the heart of God to restore his people. So you remember why they would carried off into, into, into captivity? Because they were unfaithful. They had turned away from God. And this was an act of judgment of God on the people of Israel who allowed the Babylonians to conquer them as an act of his judgment for their unfaithfulness. And so, but in spite of this, they're carried off to captivity. Now they're being restored. And I think, I think we want to get a hold of this, that it's always the heart of God to restore his people. Catch that. It's always the heart of God to restore his people. No matter how far the people of God get away from the covenant of God, the word of God, it's always the heart of God to bring them back. No matter how far you stray and wander from the Word of God, the heart of the Father is always to bring you back. You cannot sin your way beyond the love of God. You can't sin your way out of the reach of the love of God. It is always the heart of God to restore His people. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah show this. That he was restoring a people he had previously judged because of their deplorable unfaithfulness. And in the midst of this, you see that God always has a remnant. There's always a remnant, isn't there? There's always always a group of people that no matter how unfaithful the people of God become generally, there's somewhere a remnant, a group of people within who are faithful to God. You remember Elijah in 1 Kings about 18 or 19 when he's running away from Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah's like, ah, I'm not doing this anymore. Nobody cares about you, God. And he's ready to give up. And God says to him this. He says, you carry on because I have reserved for myself 7,000 people who have not bowed to Baal or kissed his statue. That... He couldn't see them, but even when Israel was going astray, God knew he had 7,000 people. There's always a remnant. 
And it's an important part of the story of God that there's always a remnant. And it's God's heart, his restorative heart, to uh, restore, restore that, uh, that remnant. That's a big storyline. Second big storyline is in these books, you'll find the covenant <coughs> foundation for preaching. I like this. You know, preaching is weird. I try not to think about it too much. I, but when I do, it, it strikes me as so weird that people will come and just surrender themselves to whatever it is I'm going to say. That's weird when you say it that way, isn't it? I know, don't say it that way. <laughs> I try not to think about it that way. Because there must be something more to it. There must be, there must be a hope in your heart that something will come to you, not from me, but from God. And that's what preaching is. That's what preaching is. And you have your favorite preachers, not because of them, but because they're used by God in such a way that you walk away with something and you go, that's from God. And this is the foundation of preaching. If not for the anointing of God, then preaching would be a fruitless endeavor. And you can trace its very roots back to the Azamiah narrative. If you look at Nehemiah chapter, uh, I want to say 8. Yeah, because that's what my notes say, so I should go say that, shouldn't I? In Nehemiah chapter 8, it says that all the people, verse 1, assembled as one man in the square, so that all the people were together. They just became one. This is, this is so important for preaching to be effective, that all the people come together in unity. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud. Now this is the length of the sermons. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Here, look at this. Here, here's your pulpit. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him were a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce. And in verse 5, it said, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Here, here's your part. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! Amen. True that! True that! Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You see, this is, this is the foundation of what preaching is meant to be. That there's an anointing that comes that causes a response from the people, not only that solid spiritual agreement but also a response that causes people to worship God and bow before Him. It's a pretty simple model. I see no reason to depart from it. 
One of the third main storylines that's very difficult for some people to understand is the prohibition against intermarriage. One of the terrible things that happened in Babylon was actually uh, that the, the Israelite people, they were there for 70 years, and they didn't have the temple, and things went from bad to worse, and so they began intermarrying with the people who were there. Now that, on the surface, is not a problem. But what happened was that by intermarrying, they began to worship other gods. They began to worship the gods of the people they were marrying. And this was a huge problem. In Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites and Hittites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. You see, they were just... They were just worshiping everything. And they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled. Now this is the tricky part. This is the tricky part. And have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. This is tricky. It says the holy race. Well, is this Could it be? You know, some have tried to use this as a biblical foundation for saying that that there's there's a superior race. Some have tried to use this to say that this is a biblical foundation for saying that people uh, who are not of the same race should not marry one. And this is about as wrong an interpretation as one could ever make from this passage. I've said it before, but I, I, I particularly love the passage where Moses' sister Miriam is, is, is all upset with Moses because he had taken for himself, it says, a Cushite wife, an Egyptian wife, a woman of dark skin. And she was all, this should not be. And she got her all superiority all up. And the Lord comes to her. The Lord comes to her and says, Who are you to grumble against my servant? And then he does this. He says, You like white? Do you like white? (laughs) And the Bible says that God made her leprous, white as snow. There's a form of leprosy that causes this white stuff to form on your skin. You like white, Miriam? I will make you all white. I think if a person has a problem with two people of not the same race getting married, they have a serious problem. And they have a problem far deeper than their understanding of Scripture. There's something broken inside of that person that was broken, maybe from their daddy's knee or from their grandpa's knee, but listen... It's wrong. It's wrong. That, and this is not a foundation for that, because if you look at the Hebrew, what this says, that these people of the holy race, the holy race, the word is zerah, which means seed. Seed. 
the holy seed. Seed meaning the seed of Abraham. That the seed of Abraham, it has nothing to do with the person's ethnicity, their race, the color of their skin. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. It has to do with their spiritual heritage. If you really want to leap this forward and apply it, it agrees with Paul who says that a believer and an unbeliever should never be married. Because in doing that, they dilute the power of the one who knows God. Paul said in Christ, there's neither Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. I think that, if anything, this really just underscores the importance of spiritual unity in marriage. Spiritual unity in marriage. That the essential foundation of a strong marriage is not how much do these people look alike, (laughs) but are these people on the same page with Jesus? Can I share a statistic with you? Perhaps I've shared it before. I share it at every wedding. That um, in 1999, the National Association of Marriage Enrichment, they um, contracted Gallup Poll to do a Gallup Poll. That's what they do. To study trends in marriage and divorce, particularly among Christians. And so they began asking people who said they were Christians a number of questions. And they found that You know, the national divorce rate is about one in two. You know that, right? About half the marriages in our country end up dissolving. And they found out that people who said, but I'm a Christian, had a a divorce rate of about one in two. And then they asked another question. Well, did you go to church? And the people said, yes, we were regular church attendees. Their divorce rate was about one in two. And they asked a series of questions, and then when they, when they finally got to this question, did you frequently pray together? Did you frequently pray together? Meaning, did you come together for the purpose of prayer as a husband and wife and pray? Did you frequently do that? That when the, when the couples answered yes, the divorce rate changed from one in two to one in 1,152. Gentlemen, that's on you. Ephesians 5, men, says that's on you. You are responsible for setting the climate, spiritual climate for your home. Don't leave that to your wife, even though she's better at it than we are. That's why we have to do it. God always lets the slowest person lead. I wouldn't get too uppity about being called the leader of your home, man. All it gets you is responsibility. (laughs) But it's on you. And I think that's what this speaks to. I think the fourth main storyline is that God is always greater than his opposition. Ezra and Nehemiah both faced opposition from enemies who said, oh no, you're not rebuilding. And they said, in the name of God, yes, we are. And they did. 
God is always greater than his opposition. There is no opposition that can stand against the very essence of who God is. The hot spot for today is in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And it has to do with confession. Among the things that the Israelites did when they returned to Jerusalem was to become overwhelmed with a sense of how far they had wandered from God and how heavy their sin was. And so they went into a time of confession. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. You get this picture? They're back in Jerusalem. They've been set free from captivity. God set them free. The temple has been rebuilt. The wall has been rebuilt. The back. And they were overwhelmed as the law was read to them with a sense of their own sin. And they confessed it to the Lord because that that is an integral part of a person's relationship with God is the confession of sin. Now notice that their confessions were accompanied by weeping and fasting and dressing in sackcloth and throwing dust on their heads. And this was part of the work of the atonement in the first covenant. That there were also lambs that were slaughtered, but an essential part of the work of the atonement, how people were forgiven, was a public demonstration of their repentance. They had to do it that way. That was the command of God. Demonstrated that they were serious. I got good news for you. Jesus Christ has done all the work of the atonement for us now. All, all the work's done. He did all the work. He did all the work on the cross. He did all the work. All the work. He said, It's finished. It's finished. It's done. It's fulfilled. It's done. It's done. Jesus Christ did that for us. So we don't have to do that. But what is the role or what are the terms of confession under the new covenant? Is there still still a place for confession of Christians? In three ways. First of all, there's an essential confession. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you confess... With your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There's an essential confession that comes from your lips that Jesus is Lord. And notice not just Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The Bible says that you cannot say that apart from the action of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, what do you want to say? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and then your life begins to conform to the Lordship of Jesus, yes? This is an essential confession. 
Those of you who make this confession understand the power of this confession, don't you? How many of you, like me, have spoken the lordship of Jesus Christ over situations and people and seen God come and do many things? The lordship of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. This is an essential confession that should flow frequently from the lips of those who call on his name. There's also the power of interpersonal confession. In James 5.16, the Bible says, we've been here many times, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now that doesn't mean you go to some secret closet and pray through a dark screen and confess to a priest. It means you look at a trusted brother in the eye and you share your sin. You confess your sin. Your, sin is, your forgiveness is already purchased by Christ. But in sharing the nature of your sin with a trusted brother or sister in the Lord, it says, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. When you stop confessing, when you fall out of that relationship, your sins will begin to mount up. But then there's also the, the sense of an ongoing confession of our sin. Because we still have it. Unless you're Rich Jenkins, you're not perfect yet. Right, Val? Yeah. 1 John 1, 9 says, if, you confess, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. If we confess our sins, it says he's faithful. I love this. Because what it says is that the forgiveness that God is offering is predicated on his faithfulness. So that it's not going to change. It's not going to change. It's something you can count on. He's faithful to forgive you. He's not going to change the rules like the person ahead of you in the line for for heaven. I'm changing that. He's faithful. It's predicated on his own faithfulness. This is an essential aspect of who God is. He's faithful and just, it says, and will forgive us our sins. So that the forgiveness that God is offering is a just forgiveness Because Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. Because Jesus Christ, his blood was shed to satisfy the justice of a holy God. And so it's not a willy-nilly, oh, I guess it doesn't matter. It's it does matter to God when we sin. It does matter to God. But when we sin, the blood of Jesus Christ satisfies the holiness. Because he's just, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's thorough. It's thorough. So when you confess your sin, you are cleansed from all unrighteousness. But I think the biggest word in that verse is the first one. If we confess our sins. This is a conditional promise. If. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just and will forgive us. If we walk around with our head thrown back, I don't need to confess my sins. Ah, Jesus covered it for me on the cross. It shows how far a person is from the cross. When we're struck by the weight of our sin and we confess it to God, we receive his forgiveness, then his faithfulness and his justice If we confess our sins. Does that mean we have to confess 
every individual sin we ever commit, and if we neglect one, that that's still on our record? Of course not. But what I do believe it means that we are called as believers who are so humbly grateful for what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross to a place of perpetual confession. I'm really not ever out of confession. I do confess my sins to God individually as they come to me in prayer or as I become overwhelmed by conviction. But I don't know that I'm ever out of a state of confession. And so confession still has a very, very big part in how we approach God. You know, when I look at Ezra and Nehemiah, I think of Babylon. I I just think of Babylon and how it was a culmination of the judgment of God against Israel for their unfaithfulness. And then when I look in the New Testament, I see the word Babylon in the book of Revelation. I'm struck by it. Again and again, it talks about Babylon. And what does Babylon mean in the New Testament? We see what it meant in the Old Testament. It was a place of judgment. In the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, as you look at the word Babylon, there are a couple ways to go. There's a preterist view which says that Babylon was a kind of a safer euphemism for Rome. So they were talking about Rome. And I think, there's, I think there's validity to that. But there's also the prophetic nature of what Babylon was meant to be. And when you read through, and you see when Babylon is referred to in the book of Revelation, you see that it is the place of the rise of the Antichrist. Babylon. Revelation chapter 14 says, Then I saw another angel fly in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God. And give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, catch this, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, They too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Babylon is at the center of this passage. Something's coming from Babylon. Something's coming from Babylon in the last days. And I think you already know that the historic site of ancient Babylon is the very epicenter of the world evil called ISIS. It is geographically the historic center of ancient Babylon. 
It's on. We've never seen an evil like ISIS. So what am I saying? I'm saying I think we're on our way to Babylon. I think America's on its way to Babylon. I think the world's on its way to Babylon. I just prayed and prayed whether to say this to you or not because I don't want to say it. And God would not release me. We're on our way to Babylon. Babylon's rising up. The world's being sucked into it. How much attention, how much energy, how much money is being spent now on fighting ISIS? We're just being sucked right into the maddening adulteries of its wine. This is part of the fulfillment of the thing that we've been reading for so long. So I, as I was getting this word, I just prayed, Lord, but give me something hopeful to say. And I prayed, well, if we're going to Babylon, if that's where the world is going, then what are we supposed to do? What are, what are we to do? And the word I got back by the Holy Spirit was this, be the remnant. Be the remnant. God always has for himself a remnant. God always has for himself a people who are faithful. Be the remnant. Even in Babylon, God had for himself a remnant. Be the remnant. Be the faithful. Worship God with our whole lives. Serve God in unwavering obedience. Be the remnant. Declare the word of God in the world without apology. Open our mouths. Be the remnant. Pay the price. Yeah, there'll be a price. Pay it. Be the remnant. And one of the things the remnant always did was they confessed. They confessed their sin. They confessed their personal sin to God. They confessed the sin of their fathers. They confessed the sin of their nation. That's what the remnant does. It confesses its sin. Humbles itself before God. As we prepare to come to these tables as our act of response to God this morning, I want to draw you through the fire of confession to get there. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, as we come to these tables, knowing that you paid every price that needed to be paid, that you did all the work that needed to be done. Some of our hearts are just struck with the weight of our sin, or the sin of our nation, or the sin of this church, or the sin of this city, or the sin of something. There's some weight on us that needs to be confessed before we drop to these tables. So I just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
that you'll come right now into each of our hearts and lead us to confess. Confess our sins. Confess the sins of our world. We want to be the remnant, Lord. But we can't be a defiled remnant. We need to be forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And we know that if we confess our sins, we'll be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak to us in convicting power of the sins that we need to confess. Holy Spirit, speak. We confess. Just just take a minute just to confess before the Lord. That's between you and God now. As you confess, you, the word of God is being fulfilled in in your life that he is faithful and just and is forgiving you by the blood of his son Jesus. So as you complete your confession, I'd like to invite you to just in an orderly way make your ways to make your way to these one of these tables, two in the front, two in the back. Just take hold of the elements and go back to your seat and just a couple of minutes I'll come back and lead us in a time of of communion with the Lord, okay?